Hello, everybody. Just like to apologize for some audio problems we have with this episode that we did not notice until we got into the editing room and it was a little bit too late to fix them. But we will be back next time with uh, regular audio. So sorry about that and enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. We explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lastly. Well, you know, this is an air power podcast. We usually talk about military aviation, but we also talk a lot about space programs here, the civilian and military, because they're awesome, right? I mean, these are very powerful programs culturally. Uh, I know when I was growing up as a kid, you know, astronauts were like the heroes that you aspired to be, right? Was that the same for you, Brian? You're a big space nerd. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think of going to the National Air and Space Museum for the very first time in high school. And that's what you were greeted with as you walk in the door, right? Where the Mercury, Gemini and Apollo capsules. Uh, I also remember being of an age where the shuttle flights were also major milestone events. Mm-hmm. It, well, the teachers would roll in the televisions turn it on, and, and we would all sit down and, and watch the shuttle flights, obviously up until Challenger. Uh, but yeah, Mike, there's no doubt I am a self-professed space nerd. Uh, I read just about any book out there on the subject. Uh, I teach history of space power. Uh, I absolutely adore it. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about what type of space power we're going to talk about today? Yeah, we're going to do something a little different because the one thing we have not talked about on this show before is what was going on kind of on the other side, so to speak, during the Cold War, the Soviet space program, which is fascinating in so many different ways. Uh, You've got very different hardware, very different technology, but also in the same way that the space program had a lot of cultural power here for us, it seems like it had maybe a similar kind of thing happening over in the Soviet Union. So to talk about that today... Uh, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Kathleen Lewis. She's the Curator of International Space Programs and Space Suits at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, and she's the author of the new book, Cosmonaut, A Cultural History from University of Florida Press. Kathy, thank you so much for being here. Mike and Brian, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Well, let's dive right in. What drew you to write about this? Why write a book on cosmonauts right now? Well, this book is obviously a long time coming. Um, it started out as my dissertation or part of it um, came from my dissertation. And it was coming about as a new way to look at the Soviet experience of human spaceflight. Um, I had the good fortune to go to the former Soviet Union in um the 1970s, I hate to admit how old I am, and I realized that what I was struck with what an immersive experience Soviet human spaceflight was. And this was at the time when the United States was just coming up off the glory of the Apollo program, but meeting my peers at the time, teenagers in, in Moscow and St. Peter and Leningrad and, and Tallinn, I realized that they knew far more about 
human space flight than even I did, um, you know, having grown up in it. So it was always been a puzzle to me, you know, why does, why does the Russian speaking population largely um, have this fascination with, with human space flight? And, and what does that mean? And what is their experience? How is it different from what Americans had experienced? And watching, you know, the, the Apollo program was covered globally. You know, we think about 300 to 500 million people actually watch Neil Armstrong step foot on the moon. Um, but we, very little was covered in the United States about what the Soviet Union was doing. You, you have Gagarin on the cover of Time magazine, and then later you have Alexei Leonov. So mm. this has been the product of me mulling over the, those issues over time and trying to see you know, what angle, what can I offer new and a new perspective mm. on mm. Soviet space flight and cosmonauts. So one of the things that jumped out at me right away, and I think speaking generationally, for myself and a lot of other people, my introduction, having having missed or been too young for the Apollo program, my introduction to the Gold Major space flight uh, was the movie The Right Stuff, and then obviously later uh, I would read Tom Wolfe's book The Right Stuff. Uh, and love it or hate it, it certainly presents a certain perspective on what it took to be an American astronaut in the 1960s. But you take that and you kind of spin it on its head and you come up with what you call the red stuff. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about what is the red stuff. Well, clearly, obviously, the red stuff is taken from Tom Wolfe's book. Um, I, I'd like to think as as a cultural historian, I'm taking it uh, deeper than the sort of the, the superficial um, use of flipping of the language. Um, Wolf himself was a cultural historian trained in American studies and was notorious for his ability to combine a rich mixture of cultural icons and experiences and translating them into into an overall experience and explaining that to a public. And that's what he did with the right stuff, explaining that je ne sais quoi, that astronauts had, flight pilots had, and how that was articulated through the decades of, of early human spaceflight and what that meant to the public. My perspective is closer to how the average Soviet citizen at the time experienced it, and it's tied into what their statements were made in the 1960s and what their reflections were. And in the 21st century on, on what they thought and hoped about spaceflight. So this red stuff is not a, a single experience or, you know, a general packaged experience that Tom Wolfe per, um, portrays in, in um, the right stuff, but it's more of a how this has changed over over the decades, how the the red stuff, which was really the that packaged experience that the Soviet Union hoped for, and how it has changed, and people look at it differently. They don't see it quite the same way, largely because the Soviet Union has transformed into Russia and into a very different world of um, not so much the opti optimism for society of the 60s, but deep cynicism about the road that they have traveled and the road that they are traveling now. 
And speaking of traveling down roads, one of the most uh, interesting things that I remember about the right stuff is that road to becoming an astronaut, that whole selection process is very iconic. I think many of our listeners might be pretty familiar with, you know, that astronaut selection process, their military aviation backgrounds that a lot of those astronauts, especially the early ones, had. What was the selection process like for the Soviet cosmonauts? Is there a similar military connection or is there something very different? How does that work? It is it is in the same in that they are both selecting human beings, largely men um, initially, for traveling into a, a new type of aircraft. And that is really the way in which um, young pilots were recruited in the USSR. They were questioned as to whether or not they wanted to fly a new type of aircraft. They weren't told that they were being recruited for space. This is all very secretive. But they also um, were recruited the, the commission, which was a very similar commission that the United States had, was um, of consisting of members of the Soviet Air Forces, um, uh, aviation physicians, politicians. They were recruiting not among the test pilots of the Soviet Union at the time, but among new, newly minted pilots, young second lieutenants who just got their wings. Their rationale for doing that was uh, the economy of sparsity um, that they suffered after World War II. They didn't have very many test pilots. They were all farmed out and working on an aircraft production facilities throughout the USSR. So they wanted their advanced pilots to stay in place because they they were um, necessary to conduct to continue with their aircraft development. But the young pilots, they recognized they weren't going to be doing very much in this new spacecraft. So you might as well have somebody who is young, physically fit, daring, able to learn the engineering and the physics of what they're about to do and appreciate the danger, but not so necessarily you know, having, the, having the experience in operating a craft. These flights were controlled from the ground, set on a precise trajectory, and, and like the United States, they did not gain maneuverability in their spacecraft until much later, the United States through the Gemini program. And, and in, in USSR, they did not gain maneuverability, workable, functioning maneuverability until the 1970s. So they weren't clearly, they weren't pilots. Um, but they recruited them for um, enthusiasm, their willingness to fly a new type of aircraft, they're also their their physical fitness and, and agility, the ability to withstand the forces of gravitation. Neither side knew at that time what would happen. You know what would happen to a human um, outside um, the gravitational forces of Earth and in microgravity. Um, but they were also recruited for size, and that was uh, a result of the limitation of Soviet technology. They knew that they could launch something to orbit the Earth. They had launched Sputnik in October 1957. They had launched the first living being into space, like the dog, in November. Um, but they knew that that spacecraft was going to be a cramped environment. And so they had their first recruitment were men, all men from the um, Air Forces. And the smallest among them, Yuri Gagarin, 
whose height varies according to records from 5'2 to 5'5, to um, probably at the lower end of that, was the, the selected to be the first because, um, among other things, he was the smallest. He was the easiest to fit inside that, that spacecraft um, and would have be less apt to feel cramped. Um, and certainly among all the recruits, the, the first, and in any case, the first um, cut is, do you get claustrophobia? And you, um, he did not get claustrophobia. Yeah, I was actually sitting in class uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about first, first person in space, first satellite in space, first animal in space. Uh, and the, the students were doing a great job of throwing things back at me. But I said, first woman in space, and someone said, Sally Ride, and I go, no. And so this is really interesting. You you have a chapter devoted to uh, sending women into space. So can you tell us a little bit about women cosmonauts, uh, what happened to them, but also how they fit into the larger idea of the red stuff? Well, the women cosmonauts are really a separate story, just not only because they were selected as a different a, a different delegation of, of potential um, cosmonauts, but also because they fall into a, yet another story of how the USSR was transforming after World War II. Um, they, as I said before, the USSR was facing a labor shortage um, as a result of the death and destruction during World War II. During the war, women had taken over roles in heavy industry and become managers and workers to keep to keep the country producing during the war. Um, after the war, when men returned from 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 the front, um, there was a movement to get women out of the factories and displace them with the men returning. Much is the same, you know, throughout the world um, that it had uh, fought in World War II, uh, but. Given that tension, they still needed women in industry because they were still short of women, um, but they wanted them in light industry. And they had to match this delicate dance that they were doing, keeping women engaged in, in employment, but also trying to find ways to um, direct women's attitudes towards um, family and home. There was a, a resurgence of women's quarterlies talking about fashion, homemaking, encouragement of women to have many children. You would have hero mothers of having 10 or more children, but you still had to have women in industry. Um, and that was translated into light industry. So when they, the same commission that had gone out and recruited the male cosmonauts went out looking for women. Well, they weren't going to find them in the Air Forces. Women were no longer in the Air Forces, even though they had flown valiantly during World War II. Um, but they looked among women who were in these voluntary um, defense agencies who had learned how to fly or to parachute, or did ac acrobatics. And they looked for the ones who were most suitable for both political and um, social and physical means. So they um, selected a group of women, um, including uh, geologists, engineers, and um, Valentina Tereshkova was included among them. She 
worked in a factory, in a textile factory, a soft industry appropriate for women at the time. And she had also, during the, the these, uh, her voluntary civil defense training, learned how to parachute. So you had this selection of women, two of whom knew how to fly before, um, one of whom had an engineering degree already in aeronautical engineering and had a pilot's license before World War II. Um, who was sort of not not rejected entirely, but was put a, put aside. Not only did she not have the right, correct social credentials, she was a third generation college educated, third generation middle class Mos- Moscovite, which took her out of the the, the workers' um, socialist um, uh, group of people. But she also um, was a mother. She was the only one who had been married and had a child. And they had a little bit of concern about sending a mother up there who in onto a mission. So they chose um Tereshkova. Um she had, as I said, the skills, she had the social credentials, and on top of that, she, like so many other people, had a, a personal link to World War II. Her father had been killed during the war. So you have this this wonderful ideal expression of the female red stuff at the time. And that is largely why she was chosen. The expectation at the time when they made the selection is that they would eventually do more with this women's crew. And these five women would go up and fly again in a multi-person crew, an all-female crew, um, and, and continue on. That did not happen largely because the USSR ran out of money, or they had ran out of money that was devoted to human spaceflight at that point. Um, they just didn't have the resources to continue their plans of basically repeating the same mission that Gagarin had flown time and time again. I mean, the, the six Vostok missions were um, at the same altitude, same angle of inclination. They were similar missions, and they repeated them time and time again, but doing that was not not worthwhile. They were, weren't getting the satisfaction from that. Well, one of the things that, speaking of satisfaction, that I really loved about this book uh, is how much pop culture there is in it. Uh, you know, I'm obsessed with comic books and music. Uh, Brian, I know you're obsessed with Walt Disney and other things. We have to talk about Disney on every show somehow. Uh, but there's a lot of pop culture in this book. You go into everything from like personal possessions and these kind of collectible things but you also talk about novels and literature and film and television shows and, and a lot of other stuff too. It's all really interesting. Uh, so tell us about how this pop culture material contributes to this idea of what the cosmonaut is in society. And then how did those depictions kind of change over time? Cause you've, you've said a couple of times that the change over time is really important here. Well, the change, um, well, the, to begin with, the popular culture was an essential part of creating this image of a cosmonaut, this cultural image, um, largely because there was no other, this was the only way the Soviet state could disseminate the idea of a cosmonaut. Um, they did not have a pervasive television culture. And in fact, the, the penetration of televisions into households that that tipping point of about 60% didn't occur until the late 1960s, so long after all of these. Um, So they had to rely on what they had at hand. Um, Stamps had been a collectible, sanctioned um, 
initially by the early Soviet state and um, and then re-sanctioned by um, Nikita Khrushchev um, just as a, an appropriate collectible for, for a socialist state. It wasn't, you know, a materialistic collection. Um, and they had this army of artists who worked on nothing but stamps. If you graduated from art school in the USSR at that time, you were guaranteed a job. You weren't going to be a, a creative artist, but you would get a job um, designing stamps, designing coins, designing medals, um, illustrating children's books, um, illustrating po- uh, political posters. So you have all of this army of artists who are putting their their talents and skills in their full force and, and creating these these icons and that market explodes as they become, they break out from being an in-house award program of sending out pins or allowing people to collect posters to something that becomes a widespread marketing campaign. This is a marketing campaign that is um, substitutes for the material goods that were promised to the, uh, to the population um, during the 1960s, they couldn't keep up with that. But, you know, we we can give you lots of cheap books, lots of posters, lots of pins. And, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll get that washing machine soon enough. But here, you know, here is the promise of our state. And so it's embodied not only the promise in the culture of the cosmonaut, but the promise in the culture of this, this concept of, of building socialism after the war. And that's actually a great segue. You know, you emphasize in the book that as time went on, the idea of the red stuff, the idea of the heroic ideal of the cosmonaut, it starts to crack and crumble. How does this happen? This happens during a sequence of seemingly unrelated events, none of which singularly would have caused it to fall apart, but just because they happened in such quick succession. Sergei Korolev, who had been the manager of the space program, um, I, I, there's often comparisons between him and Werner von Braun, um, but I think in many ways uh, Korolev was much bigger. He was the person to whom the Kremlin would go to and say, well, what are you going to do for us next? He was also managing their rocket program and their development of um, ICBMs uh, at the time. Um, He died suddenly, um, unexpectedly from a... uh, They they had not anticipated. He, in fact, had... um, um, intestinal cancer. And when they, they operated on it, they found that it had metastasized and he died on the table, unfortunately. Um, and then you have, but even before that, you had Nikita Khrushchev, who had been ousted in 1964 um, from his position because of his reckless um, challenges to the West and, and challenges to the economy. Um, that happened in October 1964. Korolev died in January 1966. And then you have um, uh, their test launch of the Soyuz, their first maneuverable spacecraft, occurred in, in um, 1967. And it had been pushed forward as a way to deploy it in advance of them really fully testing it. They lost a cosmonaut in that. 
And then finally, to make it, you know, the final blow to the public was the death, this unexplained death of Yuri Gagarin. He was in a training flight and it crashed and he died. And very little attention was paid by the government of, of picking up the pieces and providing a, a plausible explanation for his death. And that, you know, rumors grow in dark places. And when you don't have a, an official explanation, that started a whole cottage industry of rumors and speculations on what's happening to the Soviet space program. You, you have, you know, this backdrop of the successful Apollo mission and everything seems to be falling apart within the USSR. You, you, you lose the political support, you lose the management support, your, your hardware falls apart. And then finally, your hero, your national hero dies. Um, in circumstances that go unexplained for decades. Well, speaking of Gagarin in this uh, MiG-15 crash, uh, just to kind of elaborate a little bit on that, you talk about how all the conspiracy theories grew out of that. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that because it sounded so interesting. Well, after after the death of Komarov and, and the Soyuz failure, um, Gagarin had been advocating to be let to be be able to rejoin the cosmonaut corps. He'd been taken out, sent back to school, and the thought was that much in the way that John Glenn had been plucked from um, the American astronaut program, that you don't want to send your national hero at risk, and he should never fly again. He he did he objected to that and had had lobbied seriously to begin be returned to that, and he was finally given permission. Part of the the um, conditions, one among the conditions, were that he had to go back to flying and had to do training again in a trainer aircraft, a MiG fifteen trainer, um, in order to regain his, his his cosmonaut status. And he was training with Seryogin, who was a World War II veteran, a very accomplished pilot. But he was not in a very good aircraft. The MiG-15 trainer is a a single passenger aircraft that had been turned into a two passenger aircraft. Um, it was underpowered um, and uh, having two bodies in it, um, and they were flying under conditions that just really were not acceptable for. Either people of the stature, they were flying out of the airfield that was not known for its diligence in either aircraft care or our monitoring weather and, and flight conditions. Um, what we know now is that it was a combination of events. Um, they had not uh, given him accurate weather reporting information, and the cloud ceiling was much lower than he had been told, he and Siryogin had been told. Um, and the aircraft itself was underpowered. They, the official report that it came out has come out recently under the Russian Federation was that um, he, the aircraft got caught in the wake of a much more powerful jet on takeoff. And so they didn't stabilize. They didn't achieve cruising field. And by the time they realized how low they were, they were, their altitude was too low to even eject. And both were killed. Um, but 
All of those details were kept secret at the time. There were efforts almost immediately to celebrate their lives. Both men were buried in the Kremlin Wall, which is the second greatest honor um, for for a Soviet figure. Um, Being buried in Lenin's tomb is being the greatest honor. Um, But um, they... They deliberated on building monuments, renaming streets, but they never they never bothered to say, "Look, mea culpa, we we messed up. We you know we have not had reformed. We have to go back and reform our procedures, reconsider the use of these underpowered aircraft in among traffic of much higher powered aircraft. Um, we have to work on our our weather forecasting." Um, they never said that to the public, um, mainly because the, the, that's outside of the, the nature of the Soviet state. You, you never admit defeat or failure. But that left it open for all sorts of rumors. I mean, from the really ridiculous that both were drunk at the time or they were bear hunting from the, the cockpit of their, <laughs> their aircraft um, to the, the really dark conspiracy that, that Gagarin was killed in order to cover up all number of hoaxes um, among the Soviet space program and, and the Soviet aviation as well. Um, those, those rumors were probably more popular among their Warsaw Pact Eastern European allies. And you know, even to this day, if you you run across somebody of a certain age who comes from Eastern Europe, um, especially Hungary or um, the Czech Republic, you'll um, you know they will repeat things. Oh, I heard as a child that, that Gagarin was killed for this, that, or the other reason to to conceal failings. Um, and it, it's really sad because you didn't they didn't have an opportunity to learn from mistakes. If you look at um, the Apollo 204 fire or the Challenger or the Columbia events, um, yes, they are sad and horrific, but at least they were taken as opportunities to open up to the public, you know, what we've done wrong and how we're going to fix it. And um, unfortunately that the USSR and and Russia today does not have that mechanism of, of public, you know, very brief period during you know the collapse of the USSR and right in the, right at the beginning uh, uh, of the Russian Federation. It was this very sl- tiny window that opened, but um, unfortunately not anymore. And that's really interesting that you say that. Uh, you know, I've got a number of books in here. One that we use for class uh, that are published in the the mid nineties. And they talk about now with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening of the Russian archives, we're going to get all of this information and we're finally going to understand exactly what happened and how it happened and who did things. And this is going to the next decade is going to be a boom for understanding Russian and Soviet history. Uh, And as you just said, that didn't happen. And so one of the biggest challenges in writing a book, not just about the Soviet space program, but Soviet history in general, is access to sources and access to materials. So, so tell us a little bit about your your research process uh, and the sources that you ended up using for this book. Well, my research sources were, were as I said, more directed towards the experience of the average Soviet 
um, citizen at the time. Though the the technical resources did open up, and there is a wonderful collection of works of studies by my colleagues. Aziz Siddiqui um, is probably the name that comes to mind most often, who have gone into that and looked at the technical details and the economic details, and they've done a wonderful job. And they got in right, in, you know, is that window open? There was also a proliferation of memoirs and diaries coming out from people who had played leading roles in the Soviet space program during the 19, uh, during that period in the 20th century. So we do have a lot of information, but my goal was looking at, you know, what is the meaning to this and, and how did, did a Soviet citizen experience it? I had to rely on the material culture, the, the visual culture that was around me, seeing what, what went up, what was erected and what, what time it was, you know, what were the letters to the editor, um, challenging decisions about building a space museum in Kaluga. Um, what, what are the consequences of using I mean, a massive amount of titanium in, in monuments in Moscow? You have a, a rocket, a, a model of a rocket taking off that's covered in titanium. The famous, uh, sculpture of Gagarin towards the south of Moscow near the uh, presidium of the Academy of Sciences. Um, shows, um, sorry, uh, you know, is covered, that Gagarin monument is covered with titanium. Uh, you know, wh what are the consequences? And also, you know, what, how do the posters change? How does this experience? And then how do people start peeling off from this? I've, I've mentioned that the, the army of artists, you know, start, it's starting, you know, as the Soviet Union begins to unwind you have artists looking for business they're they're losing their jobs they're they're assigned jobs they're guaranteed employment and they're beginning to take off they're they're having you know underground exhibits uh literary magazines are beginning to publish um more subversive um literature so you're getting more of the this content through the artist's own interpretation and not the official interpretation coming through at, at the, um, you know, towards that end and during the 1980s. At the same time, this information is that the pri previously private information, technical information is coming out. So you're getting the bureaucrats lament and the finger pointing from the officials and you're getting other people saying, well, you know, maybe maybe this whole space program wasn't such a good idea or maybe it was part of you know maintaining the soviet state and really didn't have to do with with you know, creating a new heroism in in the ussr or or maybe we we need to look at gagarin not as this smiling young man the the, the man who was always smiling as as my my colleague Andy um, Jenks has referred to him, um, but maybe he's um, more of a tragic figure, and and those considerations, and that is you know that is the change that we we the population is no longer accepting you know that that package smiling young man holding a cradling a dove, um, and they're thinking you know maybe he too was a victim of of this this. Bolshevik experiment that we've gone through for seventy some years. Yeah, uh, that that's really interesting. Um, just one last question to 
kind of try to wrap all this up and bring this all together. Thinking about everything you were just talking about, what do you think is the legacy today of this cosmonaut program, the Soviet space program, and, and what's the benefit for us in looking at it again right now? It is, it's twofold. There's still um, the most famous words ever spoken, or we're just, I mean, as far as you, the average Russian citizen are payekali, when the word that Gagarin spoke when he was launched off, it means let's go. And, and, and people use it in common parlance. So that and the monuments themselves are still there. You, you can't get around. You have, have the monuments in Moscow throughout um, the former Soviet Union. Um, they've moved a few of the monuments. Some, I mean, obviously the ones in, in Ukraine have been, have been taken down, but the monuments to Gagarin remain pretty much intact throughout the, um, the former Soviet Union and the recognition that, that this was, this was a time when there was potential for greatness and hope. So it's looked back in, in that nostalgic way as being a time for hope. Um, but also it, it has taken on a more cynical twinge. You've had, um, if people question, you know, what was Gagarin a hero or was he a victim? Um, or, you know, what is our government doing to manipulate us in, in other ways? So there, there's a certain undercut of that, that victim. Meanwhile, um, under Putin, you know, he's trying to construct an entirely new narrative of a modern 21st century Soviet state. And I think part of the reason that that's not catching on is the recognition that the narrative in the 1960s was not completely honest. So, you know, why should we trust Putin with this narrative of, you know, turning, transforming the old cosmos pavilion into a new STEM center and, and promoting children, you know, building a new cosmodrome, a launch facility in the Far East and convincing people that, yes, you want to move out to the Far East where there, there's no education, there's no food, you know, it, it's not very convenient and it, it's um, not close to anything. Um, so it, it's adding that level. And, and you know, by no means is the space program the first time that that cynicism has been poured over um, the Russian population. This is this has occurred time and time again, you know, for the last millennia. Um, but you know, this is just a more recent example of you can only fool your people so many times, and they they naturally will start to disbelieve you. Well, for people who want to dive in a little more and get the full story, the book is Cosmonaut: A Cultural History from University of Florida Press. Kathy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Brian, if people want to follow you, uh, where can they find you on the... Uh, so I am on the website formerly known as Twitter, still hanging out there from time to time. Uh, but more importantly, you can find me at uh, Um uh, Mike, how about yourself? Well, I'm at mwhankins.com, and all of us are on balloonstodrones.com. Uh, I want to say that our music is created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email or feel free to submit an article for publication on Lucid Drones by going to lucidrones.com slash contact. Thank you, everybody, and we will see you next time.